Welcome to the study of God's Word with pastor and author Ed Taylor, recorded live from Calvary Chapel in Aurora, Colorado. To learn more about the many resources available through Abounding Grace Media, visit us online at calvaryaurora.org or download our free app on all platforms. And now, here's Pastor Ed to take us into our study. Amen. Amen. Take your Bibles, open them to Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3, we finished studying the chapter last time, but I want to come back to verse 19 and talk about one of the most important words in all of the Bible, and that's the word repent. Notice there in verse 19, it says, repent therefore and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. So the title of our message today is, what is repentance. It is an important word theologically and practically, and we want to learn today what, it, what the Bible has to say about it. So not only you can use that word properly in your relationships with others, but also you can examine your own life when it comes to the need of repentance in your daily life. Even a casual reader of the Bible will notice that the word repent is re- used over and over again. It's used so much that you may overlook it. Or you may begin to ignore it. Even as we were reading through, you know, this is just part of what Peter's saying as he's sharing the gospel. But it's a very important word. Even though it's such a common church word, it is one, in every clear presentation of the gospel, anytime you share the hope of salvation through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, anytime you share God's love for the world, This is a word that must be used. It cannot be ignored or neglected. A real bona fide call to repentance must take place in order for a man, a woman, or a child to be saved. From John the Baptist to Jesus to Peter to Paul to every true preacher of the gospel throughout every generation, the word repentance is a part of the gospel message. You could say it this way, repent, repentance is the very hinge of salvation, the turning point for true change. God has always called sinful people to repentance, all throughout the Bible, all throughout history. Again, if you'd like to take notes, just consider a few mentions, not even just the word repent, but the call to turn. Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 4, moreover, you shall say to them, thus says the Lord, Will they fall and not rise? Will one turn away and not return? Why has this people slidden back, Jerusalem, in a perpetual backsliding? They hold fast to deceit and they refuse to return. They refuse to repent. Ezekiel 14, verse 6. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, repent and turn away from your idols and turn your faces away from all your abominations. 2 Kings 17, verse 13. The Lord testified against Israel and against Judah by all his prophets, every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and statutes. Matthew chapter 3, verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. From the time Jesus began to preach and to say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Because it's so important, 
because it was the ministry of Jesus, like right at the, right at the starting gate, Jesus is preaching. Before he heals, before he turns water into wine, before he does anything, he's telling people to repent, that this is the gateway, this is the narrow path that leads to life. We need to understand this word. From Webster's Dictionary, it's a very simple definition, just an English word, just the English word repent. They define it this way, to turn from sin, dedicate oneself to a change of life, to feel regret or contrition, or to feel sorrow. Now, in chapter 3, verse 19, if you like to write in your Bibles, circle the word repent, and right next to it, the Greek word, metanoia. And it's a lot of different ways, depending on a verb or adverb, but this one is M-E-T-A-N-O-E-O. Now, some of you are wondering, you know, Ed, you do that a lot. You connect an English word with the original Greek word. Why do you do that? I'm never going to use it. No, no, actually, if you choose to write that down, you will lock in another way to remember that word. You, it'll be another connection point where, you know, okay, I'm writing it down. I'm thinking of repentance. And you, whenever you connect a word to something else, especially in the Greek, the original language, it just gives you one more step to remember it. So I'd encourage you, whether it's your tablet, your phone, your Bible, jot notes down so that there'll be a connection point because this word's super important. The Greek word means have a change, a change of place or condition. It means to change your mind. It also can mean to relent or to sorrow with a true change of heart. In the Old Testament from the Hebrew, the definitions of repent from Hebrew include to be sorry, to regret, to turn back, to return. And of course, by now you know, in the simplistic way that we remember it, it just simply means to make a U-turn. That's what repentance means in its most basic, simplistic way. When you think of repentance, you think of going in one direction and turning and going in the opposite direction. Not a one-degree turn, not a two, but a complete reversal of the direction of your life. Or, and that's how we think about it. We think about it like a skateboarder doing a 180 and going around opposite way. We think of going in the wrong direction, doing a U-turn. Now, biblically, when it comes to your relationship with God, repentance, the key for repentance is acting, an action. It is an action, not merely a feeling, but an action. It's not enough when it comes to repentance to just feel bad, but rather to have such a depth of sorrow that it leads to a change of your behavior. And so here we are, we'll get into some of the definitions. I have a few of them that will help unpack repentance. So if you're taking notes, number one, number one, repentance is a change of mind. It is a change of mind. True repentance brings about a deep change of our thinking. It, it changes the way we see things and what we understand about things. And there's at least three things that repentance includes. So when you change your mind, number one, you change your mind about yourself, the way you view yourself, which is a very, this is probably the most offensive ingredient of repentance, why people don't like it, because it forces you to reevaluate yourself. In a culture that says, well, I'm a good person. I'm a good person. And I wouldn't disagree with people that would tell me they're a good person. Not only that, I would encourage you, if you're a good person, we need more good out of you and more good people like you. 
But when it comes to your eternal soul, your definition of good is not good enough because it doesn't measure up to the requirement of God, which is, by the way, perfection. So none of us are perfect. I mean, most of us will agree with that. I'm not perfect. I've made mistakes. I'm, I'm still in process. That's right. You have to literally change your mind about yourself. And here's what it might look like. You're not as good as you think you are. You're not as good as you think you are. You need to change your mind about that. And even contrary today to many popular authors and even some Christian teachers, repentance doesn't lead a person to live your best life now. It doesn't lead a person to go, well, you know, I'm going to be everything and all my potential. No, not at all. Repentance actually reverses that and says, you know, this is the reality. I am not this big bundle of potentiality. I am a sinner before a holy and a righteous God. And that's mostly the offensive part of it. Nobody really likes to admit that they've sinned. Nobody really likes to look in the mirror and say, you know what the real problem is? It's not my upbringing. It's not my culture. It's not my bank account. The real, my biggest problem in life is me. And you'll never really agree with that statement until you repent. You have to turn away from the way you view yourself now. True repentance recognizes sin in my life and my utter need for a savior. So number one, I change my mind about myself. Number two, I also will change my mind about God. I will change my mind about who God is. Repentance involves the change of our mind about our current view of God, coming to the absolute conclusion that he is holy, righteous, and good, and we've already come to this conclusion, and I'm not. We change our view of God. He is holy, righteous, and good. When we sin, as we learn in Psalm 51, our sin is first and foremost against God. And then it's against others. And even some sins against ourselves. But our sin is first against God. In the presence of God, we'll cry out like the angels in heaven, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And repentance will change your mind about God. Thirdly, when you change your mind, you also change your mind about who Jesus is. He's not just a teacher, not just a nice guy, not just a prophet, not just a, histor- a, a figure in history. We change our mind about Jesus and recognize that he's our savior and that he loves me. And he doesn't want to see me go down this path. He doesn't want to see me destroy my life. And we're reminded of all of the things that have been shared with us that speak of God's love and character and concern for us. And we we then remember that we come to God on the basis, we come to Jesus Christ on the basis of faith, trusting in what he has done for us. Now, I just spent a few minutes explaining this, but when repentance happens, when true repentance takes place, this all pretty much happens instantaneously. You're not like sitting in a class, learning this and taking notes. The Holy Spirit quickens these things to happen in your life. And they happen in agreement with you as you understand what has been revealed to you. So repentance is a change of mind. Number two now, in the broader scope, repentance is a change of heart. A change of heart. The gospel of Jesus Christ and the recognition of your condition is going to touch your emotions. Even those of you that might say today, I'm not a very emotional person, 
Repentance, the message of the gospel, will touch your emotions. You will feel something. God is going to get to the heart of the matter in your life. Or as we've learned in previous studies, the, matter of, uh, the heart of the matter is always a matter of the heart. And for the Hebrew, the ancient Hebrews and the ancient Greeks, the first century, they believed, as many do today, that the seed of all emotions is described as in our heart. And I was listening to someone recently just saying, you know, follow your heart. It will never lead you wrong. That is wrong. Do not follow your heart because there are times in your life when you need a change of heart. You need to change your... So just because you're feeling something doesn't mean it's right. It just means you're feeling it. And so we have to have a change of heart that aligns us with God. And some of you are still unconvinced. You think uh, repentance is very transactional and it's only in the mind. That's not true. Let me show you something. If you're still unconvinced, turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Here we are instructed when it comes to repentance that absolutely it touches the emotions. And when it does touch your emotions, you need to know the difference between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. So notice with me 2 Corinthians chapter 7 in verse 8. And if you're just joining us, we're asking and answering the question, what is repentance? Peter is in chapter 3 of Acts teaching and sharing the gospel, and he just tells them straight up, repent and be converted. That's the only way you'll have times of refreshing. And, and repentance is the only way that you'll experience salvation. And we're learning that right now. Notice in verse 8. For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I don't regret it. Even though I did regret it, for I perceive that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a while. Now I rejoice that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. Verse 10. For godly sorrow produces, there's that word again, repentance to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. But observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner. What diligence it produced in you, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication. In all these things you proved yourself to be clear in this matter. So two things to watch out for, worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. Now, there is a very simple difference between the two. Worldly sorrow will center on yourself and pull you away from God in condemnation and regret and shame. Godly sorrow will lead to repentance and bring you to God for forgiveness. Those are two, that's a very simple, def like, you know the worldly sorrow, we often refer to it like, you know, if you committed a crime and you got busted and you're standing before the judge and you're all tears and I can't, you know, there's, there, is the, there are those that would stand before a judge and they're sorrowful, but they're just basically sad because they got caught. They wish they didn't get caught, now they're going to go to jail, and they're really sad and all broken up about it, but it's not really an emotion that's going to lead to any change. And then there is that sorrow that Paul describes here as godly sorrow. You go, not only do you recognize the failure, but you understand that it was against a holy and a righteous God. And you're just like, I don't want this in my life anymore. 
God, forgive me and rescue me from myself. And again, with repentance, this is all happening all at the same time. You may not fully understand it at the time, but as you learn, you go, oh, I remember that. Oh, I remember that. Oh, I remember that. There's such a drastic change that happens in an instant of time. Worldly sorrow leads to guilt and condemnation. A lot of worldly sorrow surrounds this issue of forgiveness, right? Because godly sorrow will put a person toward God and repentance and humility, and you'll come to God and say, change me, mold me, shape me, I'm broken, I'm contrite, like, Paul, like David said in Psalm 51. So that will bring you to that place. And, and yet worldly sorrow keeps you stuck on yourself. And worldly sorrow also includes, for many people, this sense of being unwilling to forgive yourself. Now, right when I say that, there are those listening, oh, listen to that pastor. He's all caught up in the world's thoughts and you got to forgive yourself. You know how the world is. Just forgive yourself and love yourself and hug yourself and close your eyes because everything's going to be fine. Well, you know that's not true. You know that's not true. When I use the phrase love yourself, I'm not using the way the world has corrupted it. This is, how, this is what I believe the Bible would teach when you love yourself and, and forgive yourself. A very simple biblical definition for that is that you will choose to receive the forgiveness of God for even that sin. Even that sin. and You name it. That sin. The one that holds you back. That when you forgive yourself, you choose to su submit yourself to the utter forgiveness of God by his blood. But here's what happens. There, there are those that are so broken up of their failure, so broken up by how they hurt so many people, how they destroy, it's just sin is so reckless that they're stuck in a place where you go, you know what, I'm not, I'm not even worthy of salvation. I'm not even worthy of God. I, I don't, why would God love me and why would God care? And even believers live in that realm. Paul, when he writes to the Corinthians, he's writing to believers. He's describing these emotions to a church that needed to repent. And so what is the way out? Because here's, here's let, let, me, let me describe what it really is. Because, you know, your unwillingness to forgive yourself is a sin against God in and of itself. It is another sin. And I'll tell you why. When you sit there, when you think in your life and your brokenness that I'm not even going to ask God, I don't want anything to do with forgiveness, this is what you're doing. You're saying this. You're thinking this way. You're, th you're looking at the sin in your life and you're like, this sin is so bad. And, and it is so destructive that if I were God, I wouldn't forgive it. And then to that, we all say, thank God, you're not God. And so there you are sitting and you go, if I was God, I would not forget this. So forgive this. So I won't even deal with it. And, and there's a Bible word for putting yourself in the place of God. You know what it is? Idolatry. It is the sin of idolatry. So like, well, I'm going to just take control of my life. And I've gone before, outside the grace of God. I've gone outside the love of God. You know, if I was God, I wouldn't forgive it. Which is why some of you have broken relationships with others. Because you refuse to forgive them. Because you think the sin is so bad that if you were God, you wouldn't forgive them. And I know it's hard in this realm. And I know it personally by experience. You think forgiveness might give approval. And it doesn't. And you think forgiveness might be a sign of weakness. It might. But when you forgive someone, you release them of the debt that they owe you. And you free yourself from being controlled by their continual sinful behavior. 
You don't have to live under it anymore. You can walk in freedom. There's a true freedom when you, when you receive the forgiveness of God and then you give it. And then you go, but Ed, you don't understand. They're still sinning against me. Well, this is how you do it in a, with other people. You live in a lifestyle of forgiveness, just like you live in a lifestyle of repentance. You know, there's another doctrine out there. It's, a high, it's called in the category of hyper grace. There was a guy on the radio here in Denver for a while that was teaching this. I don't know if he still is or not. But the doctrine goes something like this. You only need to repent one time and never again because you're basically sinless the rest of your life. Wow. You are not sinless. You need to continue to repent, church. Did you know that? You need to continue to change your mind, change your... Now, of course, you're not repenting to get your salvation back. There is one truth. Like, you do repent once for salvation, but there is a lifestyle of brokenness and repentance throughout our whole lives. Asking for forgiveness. Not just being sorry, like he says here. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. You know, and you know how it is sometimes in relationships. Somebody will come and go, you know, I'm sorry if you're upset for maybe something I might have done and it's really all your fault. I'm sorry. Well, that's not repentance. Repentance is this. Will you forgive me? And then you say exactly what you did for saying that wicked thing or for doing that way. Will you forgive me? And then there is a, blunt, a connection of repentance. And what? Even repentance before one another is a change of mind and a change of heart. And as we'll see in a moment, a change of behavior. If you don't change your behavior, you haven't repented. It's just the way it is. You continue to live in sin, you haven't repented. Because that's our third point. Our third point is, is that repentance is a change of action. It is a change of action. Or you could say a change of direction. When you and I repent, we don't just change our mind. We don't just see a heart change. But thirdly, we see a lifestyle change. It starts small, but over time, it's very big. Your life becomes reoriented with God's plan and will. And listen, church, repentance always involves action. Bad action is replaced with right action. It is an inward work of God inside of us, our change of mind and heart, but it's also an outward change of the course of your life. This is something that can be seen. You can literally see repentance in people's lives because what they were doing before, they're not doing anymore. <laughs> it's obvious. As a matter of fact, I think it was, it was Charles Spurgeon that said, uh, so to what degree should we see repentance in a person's life? And I'm paraphrasing here because I couldn't find the, the exact quote. But he said something like, to the degree that the sin was seen and experienced, repentance should also be seen and experienced. So if it was a massively public, you know, and millions of people saw it, then millions of people should witness your repentance. Or, or what was termed in the New Testament, the fruits of repentance. If repentance was a tree, it's going to bear fruit. It's going to be obvious. And isn't it true? Unrepentance is equally obvious. When you say, oh, I'm so sorry, I'm not, and you just keep doing. That's why, you know, raising a hand in a service doesn't save you. It doesn't, coming up to the stage here, we had a brother last night stand up to receive. Standing up didn't save him. When he came up to talk after the service, it was a whole process that God was bringing him to, to repentance and change. And we just got to be a part of it here in the room. 
But standing doesn't save you. Being in a church doesn't save you. Jesus Christ saves you by faith. And the hinge to get in is repentance. And I know it doesn't take long to consider all the brokenness around us, you know, broken relationships, broken families. And one of the reasons why is there's just no repentance. It doesn't even have to be biblical repentance. You know, you have some unsafe family members and like, it doesn't have to be, just stop what you're doing. Stop saying that. Stop doing that. If, if you find that in your life, you find that with a boss or a coworker, I mean, it could be an open door where there's some radical change of the coworker, but they're not saved. You can come to them at the right time and go, you know what? This is so good that we've changed and we've got it. You know what happened? You know what happened in your life? You repented. What? And you got their attention now and you can just slip into them the biblical truths of repentance because that change probably took a lot of effort on their part and now it's an open door for the gospel. It's an open door to talk about the things of God in their lives because they could be so close. Repentance isn't just biblical, but it's significant when it is biblical. It involves inside work of God and an outside work from you. You know, James would put it this way in James chapter 2. In verse 18, he says, But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I'll show you my faith by my works. You'll see it. And for those of us that have dramatic testimonies, which is unfortunate, right? Because a dramatic testimony means we spend a lot of years in pain and sorrow and difficulty. And, but for those of us that have a dramatic testimony, this all makes sense. Most of you... Probably all of you never met the old sinful Ed. So there's really no comparison. I mean, there are people in my life like Marie. Uh, Marie definitely met that guy. Didn't like him very much, but met him. Sometimes she doesn't like the new Ed right now very much either, but that's, that's marriage. That's life, right? We all still continue to sin, right, husbands? Oh, look at that. Not our wives, but our husbands. Marie knows the old Ed. Even Eddie, when he, was a, when he was a little guy, he had, unfortunately, the old Ed as a dad. Um, but he also knew, met the new Ed. You know, dramatic testimony. Some of you don't have the most dramatic testimony, but you still as well needed to repent. And the good news is, is that in, through your repentance, whether it was a young child or what, he kept you from all the things that we all had to repent from and kept you from great pain. There's a great illustration. We won't develop it, but I do want you to see it. Would you go back to Luke chapter 15 with me as we close? Change of mind, change of heart, change of direction. We change our mind about ourselves, about God, about Jesus. Repentance is necessary. You're not going to be saved without it. It, it won't. It, it, it's, if you don't repent and you continue to live a life in sin, you're going to die in your sin. You're going to die apart from Christ. And that's just the truth. You need to hear it today from the scriptures. And, and we find a, a neat illustration, although not exact, but very close to what we're learning here in Luke chapter 15 with what we commonly know as the prodigal of the parable, or excuse me, the parable of the prodigal son, which actually, by the way, isn't necessarily the right title. You know that, right? This is not the pro parable of the prodigal son. It's actually the parable of the loving father. That's the, the focus, unfortunately, has always been on the son, but it's actually on the father. If you count one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, 
11 times the Father's mentioned here. It's all about a picture of your Heavenly Father and how He received you to Himself. However, there is the insight to compare ourselves to this young man, and here he is in verse 17. It says, He came to Himself, and He said, Many of my father's hired servants have bread enough to spare, and I perish with hunger. I'll arise, go to my father, and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father, and when he is still a great way off, his father saw him, had compassion, ran and fell on his neck, and kissed him. And then he said in verse 21 to his dad, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight, no longer worthy to be called your son. And then the father throws a party for him. So you see the ingredients, the whole situation. This is, he is a different young man than he was when he left. When he was so confident in himself, he, he wants what's his, he, the inheritance. But his dad isn't even dead yet. So that's when you usually get your inheritance after death. And so the equivalent of where his heart is at that time is like, you know, dad, I wish you were dead because I want what's mine. Even though it really wasn't his, it was the benefit of his dad giving it to him. It really wasn't his, it was his dad's. So he's just this hard, cocky kid that wants to spend money and go party, and he does. The father gives him the permission to do that and go live your life however you want. The word prodigal actually means wasteful, and he lived a wasteful life. I suspect that some listening to me right now, you're living a wasteful life. You have taken what God has given to you or what the home you live in or what your parents have done for you and you're just wasting it. You're just wasting away. And God will be calling you back to himself. So what happens? All the circumstances of his life lead him to the place where he is beginning to change his mind. (laughs) This isn't for me. What did I do? I can't believe where I'm at. And that led to emotion, a change of heart. I I got my dad. He started to change his mind about his dad. You know, my dad, it would be okay. He's an okay guy. My life would be better even if I was just his servant. He changed his mind. He changed his heart. And then, a change of heart. And then what does he do? He goes home. He acts on it. And what he was thinking about, he tells his dad. He gives to his dad a whole new perspective. And what does his dad do? Welcomes him and receives him. It's the same for you and me. We change our mind about our current condition. Our hearts are changed. We start to emotionally feel sick about the condition of our lives. We have a godly sorrow that leads to repentance, which is a turning away. And here he is coming back to his dad, following through with action. A change of mind, a change of heart. The Bible says in Proverbs 28, 13, that he who covers his sins will not prosper but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. Repentance is God's will and pleasure for you. In 2 Peter 3 verse 9, it says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Repentance is God's gift of his sovereign love. Acts chapter 5 verse 31 has Him, God, is exalted to his right hand, speaking of Jesus, to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. And so God's calling us and reminding us of this important word today. 
even as you and me as believers, we need to live a life of repentance. We don't just repent 30 years ago and now I don't make any more mistakes the rest of my life. No, my life in a broken, contrite place, I'm ever awakened and I'm ever acknowledging continual sin in my life. Not a lifestyle of sin, but continual episodic sin. If you are in a lifestyle of sin, then there's even a greater need for you to repent today, for you to examine yourself. Because true believers don't live a lifestyle of sin. There is a distinct difference between a life of the believer and the unbeliever, just like worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. So when you're sharing the gospel, you don't have to lay out this 45-minute or 30-minute Bible study uh, for somebody, but you can think of it, change of mind, change of heart, change of direction. And you can look at that in your own life. That don't, don't start applying it to everyone before you apply it to yourself. You look in the mirror and go, okay, Lord, where am I? What's my feeling? What do I believe about me? What do I believe about you? What am I feeling right now when I have sinned? Do I even have a feeling? Because the Bible says that you can grieve the Holy Spirit. The Bible speaks of you having a hardened heart. And the longer you live in a hardened heart, what do you think is going to happen? Your heart's going to get harder to the point where you feel nothing anymore. And that's just fertile ground for the destruction of the enemy in our lives, where that's where we sit and we're like, woe is me, what a horrible person. No, God has placed a place of release for you. and You can receive it from him today. So Father, we pray that uh, as we consider the heaviness of such a subject, that we would receive it into our hearts and lives and that we would understand what your Bible teaches, not just to be a student, but rather to also be a lover of God and a lover of our neighbor. And that we would urge and encourage the men and women around us to repent for the kingdom of God is near. The world in such chaos and disorder, crisis after crisis after crisis, just reminds us, Jesus, when you taught us about in the last days these things would be happening like labor pains, and Lord, you know, I've never experienced that personally, but having talked to many that have, there's just that intensity of pain and that increase in frequency of that pain. We just know that the delivery is near. And we see the same, the intensity of these things, the increased frequency of these things. We know your coming is near. And may we be about our Father's business and all that you have before us. In Jesus' name, amen. We pray that you've been encouraged by this Bible study delivered live from the sanctuary of Calvary Aurora. For prayer or a copy of this study, call us at 877-30-GRACE. That's 877-304-7223. Or visit us online at calvaryaurora.org. Be blessed as you worship Jesus this week.